Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians once again. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul identifies his recipients to the saints who are at Ephesus. We need to remember that that word saints in the biblical context is not referring to super-Christians. It's referring to all those who by faith are trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They're ordinary people like you and I. People who... Boy, this sounds weird to me this morning. It's distracting. Can you hear okay out there? They're ordinary people like you and I who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're not perfect, but they have acknowledged and repented of their sin, asked God for his forgiveness for their sin, and by faith are trusting that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to pay for their sin. If you have done that, it is with love and respect this morning that I address you as the saints at the Rock Community Church. In verse 2 through 14 of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul goes on to give us the spiritual blessings that have been made available, available to all saints. It's not a comprehensive list, but it nonetheless is an impressive list. In verses 15 through to the end of the chapter, Paul prays for the saints who are at Ephesus. And you'll remember when we studied these verses, I suggested that we could adopt this prayer when we pray for the saints here at the Rock Community Church. It's, it's an absolute wonderful prayer. And how good is it that we would pray the inspired word of God back to him? As we come to Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul paints two before and after pictures. In verses 1 through 10, he presents the before and after salvation picture. A person moves from being dead in your trespasses and sins, according to verse 1, to being God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works. In verse 10. And how did that happen? Well, the turning point is in verse 4. And it begins, but God. It is a divine intervention. The second before and after picture describes how Gentiles, non-Jews, go from being outsiders to being insiders. They become part of a brand new community consisting of both Jews and Gentiles. So that in verse 19 they are identified as fellow citizens of God's household. Verse 21, being fitted together. And verse 22, being built together. And how does that happen? Well, the turning point of the game is verse 13. But now... 
in Christ. Another divine intervention. And then we come to chapter 3. That begins, you notice, for this reason. Or reading from the New Living Translation. When I think of all this. And specifically, to this new community where Jews and Gentiles have been brought together and become the household of God. In other words, the church. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading from God's word. I'll begin reading at that verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 3 and read through down to the end of verse 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what was the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence, confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. This is God's word to us today. Please be seated. Father, we've just sung about it. There is none like you. None that can do what you have done or are doing. Thank you for the word which was made flesh and dwelt among us. He was called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Thank you too for this, your written word which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man and 
woman of God, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So in the words of the psalmist, teach us your ways, O Lord, that we may live according to your truth. Give us ears that hear, eyes that see, spiritual realities, hearts that are receptive, and wills that are determined to obey, regardless of what others may think or say, or even what we ourselves may feel or desire. Give us courage and strength. Keep us from losing heart or becoming fearful. May these verses we are focusing on this morning work to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you notice anything unusual about that opening verse of chapter 3? It's an incomplete sentence. Paul actually interrupts himself mid-sentence. His initial intention was to pray for them again. We know that because he continues his original thought in verse 14. Notice verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And so he picks up exactly where he leaves off in verse 1, in verse 14. For this reason. So, verses 2 through to the end of verse 13 is a digression. But don't let that fool you. Because it's a digression does not mean it's insignificant or unimportant. In fact, just the opposite is true. One commentator points out, and I quote, this is the most personal section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It is not simply a parenthetical, autobiographical digression. End of quote. So this is a wonderful description of how Paul viewed his contribution to what God prepared in advance for him to do. Remember chapter 2, verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Indeed, God has planned in advance the contributions that you and I will make as we walk in them. However, the Apostle Paul becomes concerned that his walk, in other words, his present circumstances, would cause these saints who are at Ephesus to lose heart, or according to the New International Version, to be discouraged, or according to Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation, get you down. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart 
at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Interesting. Notice, lose heart is a choice. It's a choice that you and I will make. And Paul is asking these Ephesians to make that choice, not to lose heart. He can't make it for them. And he's not commanding them not to lose heart. But he's making an appeal. He's asking them to not let his tribulations become the source for their ministry blues. I'm asking you not to lose heart. So let me ask you, what would cause you to lose heart? Or to be discouraged? Or to get you down? How about persistent opposition? Either from within the church or from outsiders. Remember when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem from Babylon? He came to rebuild the outer walls of the city of Jerusalem. Sanballat, Tobiah, and company were constantly running interference. And the Jews were losing heart. I don't have to tell you that we are living in a culture today that is becoming increasingly intolerant of a biblical worldview. Living in this present political and cultural environment, unless something changes, will make it increasingly difficult for you and I not to lose heart. What else would cause you to lose heart? How about a spirit of apathy or lack of interest in spiritual things among our fellow believers? That can get discouraging. Public figures. Popular evangelical leaders who fall from grace. James McDonald. Bill Hybels, Jerry Falwell, to name just a few. How ironic is that last name, by the way? Falwell. Nobody falls well. How about the lack of visible results? I often think of Jeremiah, who for 40 years was faithful, doing what God had called him to do, and did not see one convert in 40 years. No wonder he ended up in scripture. Unbelievable faithfulness. Isolation and loneliness can cause us to lose heart. Betrayal, unkept promises, unmet expectations. Expectations, reality. The distance between the two 
is where discouragement and losing heart flourishes. How about the tribulations, difficult times of other people that we love and care about? It's hard to watch them struggle, isn't it? When there's absolutely nothing you or I can do to improve their situation. You know, that's what they're talking about here in Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul admits as much when he asks them not to lose heart at my tribulations. The Greek word translated tribulations is found 45 times in the New Testament. But only once in the book of Ephesians. And it's here. The word includes the idea of affliction, distress, oppression, anguish, and trouble. And certainly sitting in a Roman prison, or perhaps being under arrest with a Roman guard watching and potentially chained to you 24-7, I would say that that certainly qualifies as a tribulation. Paul did not want his present circumstances to cause these Ephesian believers to lose heart, to become discouraged, to, to give up, to lose their enthusiasm for the things of God, for their ministry. So he provided them with a heavenly perspective on his present circumstances, on the stewardship that he had been given, on the undeserved privilege that he had received, and then their in, integral part in the plan of God. Remember our theme for the book of Ephesians? Both heavenly-minded and earthly good. God's purpose for us this morning is that you and I would not lose heart. Regardless of what is happening to us, in us, or even around us. God doesn't want us to lose heart. Developing and maintaining the following perspectives will prevent you from losing heart. They're rooted in four fundamental spiritual realities. If you keep these in mind, you'll not lose heart. You will be both heavenly-minded and earthly good. Perspective number one. God is sovereign in the circumstances of life. This is a fundamental spiritual reality exemplified by Paul in verse 1. Remember Paul's story? Let me read that verse first. For this reason, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul's story, it began, he was an elite, well-educated Jew who was absolutely determined to eliminate followers of Jesus. But then he had a spiritual encounter with the resurrected Jesus on his way to Damascus in search of followers of Jesus. 
following this awakening or conversion, the believers in Damascus wanted nothing to do with him. They didn't believe he had a change of heart. Barnabas, a well-loved saint in the Jerusalem church, was actually needed to introduce Paul to the apostles and other believers in the city of Jerusalem when he returned there. Paul was called by God to be the apostle to the Gentile world. Paul completed three very successful church planting expeditions in in Asia, Macedonia, and other surrounding provinces on the north shore of the Mediterranean Sea. After his third church planting expedition, which ended in the city of Jerusalem, where he brought gifts from the other churches for the believers in Jerusalem who were under a terrible famine, he was then confronted by the Jewish religious swamp who suffered from an irrational case of the Paul syndrome. As a result, he was incarcerated in Caesarea for two years and then shipped to Rome where he is now subject to some kind of house arrest. For at this point, when he's writing Ephesians, for approximately three years already. For preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. This is Paul writing, For, though, for through him we, both Jew and Gentile, have access, have our access in one spirit to the Father. And that message drove the religious elite of Judaism absolutely insane when it came to Paul. As a result, he ends up in prison. But notice how Paul sees it in verse 1. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, not of Rome, not of Caesar, not of the Jews, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I've said it often. It is easy to believe in the sovereignty of God when everything is going our way. But how about when you're into your fifth year of incarceration for doing exactly what God prepared in advance for you to do? Still believe in the sovereignty of God? I can't think of a more profound and credible expression of belief in the sovereignty of God than Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he continues, for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul was not only willing to sacrifice his own freedom, comfort, and time, he was doing this for the sake of, of those outsiders. 
And notice he repeated this same idea in verse 13. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. Paul's walk in the good works which God prepared in advance for him to do actually led to his incarceration. That is what belief in the sovereignty of God looks like. Incarceration for almost five years for doing exactly what God had called him to do. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, you may remember these words, informs us that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28, provided these words of assurance to them. And we know that God causes all things, all things, to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Believing in that God is sovereign in all circumstances of life will prevent you from losing heart. Perspective number two. God has revealed his redemptive plan. Look at verse two. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, and listen, Certainly, these people had heard of the stewardship that had been given to Paul. My goodness, look at Acts chapter 19. Paul had spent two plus, possibly three years amongst them, teaching these people, discipling them. Paul had been given an entrustment that he was expected to manage on God's behalf. Like those three servants in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. The master entrusted his possessions to them. According to verse 15, each according to his own ability. Eventually, they were required to give an account to that master when he returned. As will we all including the Apostle Paul, for the stewardship entrusted to him. The stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, and clearly Paul saw this entrustment was given to him for the benefit of others. It wasn't something to be spent on himself. It wasn't just for his benefit, for his advantage. That by revelation, this is not something that Paul was able to figure out on his own, as brilliant as he was, well-educated, qualified beyond belief. Rather, it was by revelation. There was made known to me the mystery. And again, in the biblical context, mystery isn't like one of those Agatha Christie episodes. Mystery in the Bible means that it's referring to something that God has, has intentionally kept hidden 
until at just the right time or in the fullness of time, he discloses it. He discloses additional information concerning his redemptive plan. The theological term is called progressive revelation. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus was talking to his disciples about events that were to take place near the end of the age. And he describes them. But speaking of the timing of when these events were going to happen, he says this, However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So the timing of these events. We know what will happen, but when they will happen, it remains a mystery to this very day. Reminds me of one of the things our, my father used to tell us when he was trying to promote this whole idea of keeping confidence. He would say, a secret is only a secret until you tell your best friend. The Father has told no one when these events will take place. And notice the end of verse 3. As I wrote before in brief. What's that referring to? Turn back to chapter 1, verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. Let me read it from the New Living Translation. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. The consummation. And oh, what a glorious day that will be. But here in chapter 3, Apostle Paul wants to expand on what he had mentioned earlier in hopes that this additional explanation and information will preserve or keep them from losing heart. Verse 4. By referring to this, meaning the stewardship of God's grace given to him, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So it is the Spirit of God who is the agent, the messenger boy, so to speak, the mailman who's delivering the message that this mystery was first revealed to his apostles, holy apostles and prophets. Colossians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 speaks of the same revelation. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past. 
but now has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles, non-Jews. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And what exactly was this mystery that was being revealed? Look at verse 6. To be specific, Paul writes, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. The mystery was not that these Gentiles would be saved and somehow have all the benefits, those blessings that are reserved for God's people. It's not that. That was something that God had always had as part of his plan. Think back to Abraham. The father of the nation of Israel received a promise in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And contained in that promise were these words. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you will be cursed. And all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. The mystery was the formation of a community consisting of both Jews and Gentiles, becoming one body called the church. That was the mystery of Christ that was revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister, diakonos, Someone who serves other people according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. What a, what a humble view of himself. Don't lose sight of the fact that we're speaking of the great Apostle Paul here. The one who had been that rising star in Judaism before he had that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was a brilliant man, brilliant Jewish scholar. The one who, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, wrote 13 of the 26 New Testament books. 14, depending on what you do with the book of Hebrews. But Paul makes no claim no personal claim on this ministry that was entrusted to him. He saw it as a God thing from beginning to end. An opportunity graciously giving, a calling to serve God by serving others in the power of the Holy Spirit. Realizing that you are a beneficiary of God's revealed plan of redemption will prevent you from losing heart. You're part of this. Welcome to the New Testament church. Beloved, I can't tell you how glad that I am to be born on this side 
of the cross. Can you imagine? Perspective number three. You are an integral part of his plan. Paul's humility is displayed even further in verses 8 and 9. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. In other words, God's unmerited favor. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable or incomprehensible or unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light, expose, explain, teach, preach what is the administration of the mystery. How it all works. How this, this thing called the church. How the bringing Gentiles and Jews. How that all works. For which, for, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. What does, what does Paul's claim to be the least, the very least of all saints imply? See that there? Beloved, we can't get any lower than the very least. If Paul's unmerited favor extended to the very least of all saints so that he could be used in such significant ways, then what are the possibilities for you and for me? Unbelievable. Now granted, you and I may never be as public as the Apostle Paul in his contributions. But your contributions are no less significant. Each one of us is necessary. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12, Paul presents an analogy for the church and its participants. He compares it to the human body. We are told in verse 18 that, that God places each one exactly where he wants us to be. Every one of us are contributing members to the body of Christ. To God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Our responsibility? How do you respond to that? He goes on. Walk in them. Verse 10. So that Here's the purpose statement. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Wow. Are you kidding me? Can you believe that? 
The manifest wisdom of God is like it's being made known through the church in the sense that there are no two individuals exactly alike. And yet, God is using each and every one of us to display his wisdom. And not to the world, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To angels. Perhaps even to both good and bad evil angels. He's not explicit here. John Stott wrote, It is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to us, to humans. It is through the new creation, the church, that he reveals his wisdom to the angels. How fascinating. I like Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation of this verse. Through followers of Jesus like yourselves, gathered in churches, he doesn't put this in here, but like the Rock Community Church, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In other words, this was God's plan all along. It was hidden to us, but it was an eternal purpose. Remember again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. So stay tuned. There's more to come. But for now, you and I are an integral part of God's plan. His eternal purpose. Each and every one of us. From the next to the very least. Because Paul's already claimed that seat on the bus. So the next one up, from there all the way to the, the, the best and brightest, the greatest, and everyone in between, we're all an integral part of God's plan. And you know, that should keep us from losing heart. Perspective number four. You've been given direct access to God. Look at verse 12. My New American Standard Bible, it reads, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. The New Living Translation reads, Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. What more can be said? Not only is it possible, but the scriptures present multiple examples, many invitations to come. In fact, we are committed or commanded to pray without ceasing. Listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Speaking of Jesus. Yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We don't come with self-confidence. We come with Christ-confidence. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Taking advantage of your direct access to God will prevent you from losing heart. God is sovereign in the circumstances of life. He has revealed his redemptive plan. You are an, an integral part of God's plan. You've been given direct, direct access to him. So please, verse 13. And in the New Living Translation, please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. Choose not to lose heart. Choose not to lose heart. Including this appearance here in Ephesians chapter 3. The Greek word translated to lose heart is found six times in the New Testament. And I put those six references on the bottom of that sermon note handout. I'm going to assign, give you a homework assignment to read those verses and determine what it is the scriptures say will keep us from losing heart based on those six appearances of this word. I've got them here, but we've run out of time. Let me just give you the last one. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So doing good is an antidote for losing heart. And you can go through the other five and come up with the suggestions there. My appeal to you this morning is don't take yourself out of the game. Stay at it. Don't lose heart. God is sovereign. You know his redemptive plan. Y'all, the you is plural in this verse, in this chapter. You all are an integral part of God's plan. Pray always. Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty in all things. Enable us to trust that spiritual reality when things go awry. 
Thank you for the plan of redemption that has been revealed in Jesus and his church, of which we are a part, both individually and collectively. Empower us to walk in the good works you've prepared in advance for us to do. May we be found faithful. And may our faithfulness provide encouragement so that we do not lose heart. May our prayers have the same influence in our lives as we make a habit of inviting you to be involved in the details of our lives. And we ask all of these things boldly and with confidence in Jesus' name. Amen.